Welcome to the Triggerize podcast, where we hear from people who contribute to our vision of a world where all youth have the power to choose where, when, and how they meet their sexual reproductive health needs. On this episode, we have the exciting opportunity to hear from one of our newest team members, Sarah Malaba. Based in Nairobi, Sarah is taking on the role of Chief Impact Officer. She is a seasoned leader in public health with a consistent record of accomplishment in planning and executing ambitious initiatives across Africa. She has exceptional talent in initiating and cementing strategic partnerships with high-level government officials, nonprofit organizations, and government agencies including USAID, CDC, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, CEDA, and the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Most recently, after serving two years as a project director at Population Services International, Sarah has transitioned into a role as Chief Impact Officer at TriggerEyes. Welcome, Sarah. You are stepping into a new role with us. And so to begin, what does impact at TriggerEyes look like for you? And what has impact meant in your career so far? <laughs> Great. I think impact for me from a TriggerEyes perspective is linked to the core offering of the organization, which is really around... Um, adolescent and youth and their sexual and reproductive health needs and then the wraparounds that come with that. So I'd look at impact in terms of two layers. The core offering around sexual reproductive health, access to services that they can choose, how and when they get them, and then the wraparounds that come with that because then we are also looking at an adolescent young person in a holistic manner. You know, they don't just come with SRH needs, they come with other needs uh, that are important uh, to be addressed and which um, uh, trigger rises positioning to, to address. Um, at a personal level, thinking about populations and, uh, and, and needs of people, um, impact to me at this point in time and why I joined trigger rise is uh, centered around the needs of adolescent and, and youth across the world, and especially in sub-Saharan Africa, we are grappling with a triple threat right now, looking at HIV as a burden, looking at unwanted pregnancy, and then looking at the threat around sexual and gender-based violence. And all that comes with it in terms of the structural challenges around adolescents and young people. So uh, at this point in my life, um, impact for me means addressing the needs of this population that is a, a huge population, so potentially addressing the biggest public health problem of our time. You mentioned a holistic approach to intervention. Is that something you've seen throughout your career or are you seeing a change in how healthcare initiatives are being deployed? So the case has been a siloed approach to everything to the person and even to the public health uh, challenges of our time. So, for example, you'd find a lot of um, organizations and including funders focusing on one problem at a time or one population at a time. Then with time, um, you know, the conversation has been, why don't we look at it in terms of a continuum? Because this person, you know, has different needs at different years of their lives. So they are for example, needs for under five-year-olds, needs for adolescents and young people, needs for young adults, 
needs for middle age populations and now needs for the 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 older or aged population so um and then over time then um, everybody is beginning to talk about taking an integrated approach taking a holistic approach uh it will you know ensure efficiencies in implementation efficiencies in the funding that's available even efficiencies in the infrastructures that we need to use for example if you're just using a nurse or a clinician to address contraceptive needs then you know you're really saloing this person to the potential array of services that they should be able to provide at one at one point and hence the whole conversation of why don't we think about one stop shops why don't we think about an integrated approach why don't we think about uh, task shifting for example so that you know somebody is not too taxed but you know people can be able to do what they need to do based on their on their skills level to the best of their ability and offer an array of services so i think the the approach is changing with time it it will take time to align completely you know people talk about integration but we are yet to crack you know what does integration means in term mean in terms of um uh funding how do you fund for an integrated approach uh, we have funders struggling with that how do you human resource for an integrated approach implement a struggle with that how do you report for an integrated approach you know the md folks struggle with that a lot so it's going to take us a while to align but i would definitely say we are further along today than we were maybe 15 years ago when we were just talking about integration but not really figuring out the models of integration the opportunities for integration and now i think we're in a we're in a better place of of doing that you draw on your experience you know of working firsthand with many different population groups either in your studies or in your working life just now you mentioned different types of care required by different population groups and what has led you to focus on the health of youth so my biggest uh, driver for focusing on youth of course has to do with just the fact that we are we have a youth bulge especially in sub-saharan africa the youth are the biggest populations uh, you know when we look at numbers and demographics so that's one two i think we did something okay for what i may call an older generation in terms of information in terms of access but when we in the in in this time when we have a youth bulge then we see a different type of demographic a different type of behavior a different type of access to information and even a different type of um implementation kind of environment policy some policies some countries policies are open some countries policies are closed much more than ever so there's opportunities and threats uh, but as i said um the the adolescent is the biggest uh, population right now adolescents and young people across sub-saharan africa but also the population that faces the biggest threat in terms of unwanted pregnancies around uh, hiv infections i mean we've seen the numbers the new infections we are seeing among young people are quite mind boggling and disturbing for a public health specialist like myself and also just the rise in sexual and gender based violence so um i think in addressing the youth public health needs i uh, will be part of the force that is addressing what is our biggest public health threat or our biggest public public health challenges uh, of this time we're preserving our future and of course now we're saying the youth are not the future the youth are now our now they are our today 
then we, we are not doing enough to address their health needs, especially their sexual and reproductive health needs. Well, in doing a bit of research, I found out that since graduating with first-class honours in your undergraduate degree in human nutrition, you have gone on to complete an MBA and master's in public health and are currently pursuing a PhD in the same field. So how has your extensive theoretical study complemented your on-the-ground experience? So I would say that, um, wow, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm looking for the best answer. Uh, but this is what I would say. Um, a lot of my theoretical knowledge, uh, especially the MBA, makes a lot of sense in today's world because with an MBA, I, get, I got some practical skills, for example, on how to think about leadership in the health space, um, which is a big issue as well. Uh, people say everything rises and falls based on leadership. So I was very keen to understand what we could do differently in terms of the health space because we have practitioners who know what they need to do, all right? But, you know, the organization of health, the collaboration within health uh, is something that I went in to learn how to do better, including how do you manage teams that, you know, are given to saving lives, you know, that could actually spend their whole lives trying to save another. How do you balance out in terms of diversity, in terms of um, caring for the carer, in terms of organizing that well so that we can really achieve our health goals? So uh, I would say from my NBA um, learnings, it's, it's all about supporting the health system to be all that it can be in terms of serving the health needs of others. And of course, with my MPH, it gives me the, the technical grounding in terms of, for example, principles of uh, disease prevention, uh, principles around organizing community health, and thinking about quality assurance and quality improvement, and also thinking about this big question of how do we measure impact and how do we even define the impact of it. Um, and right now I'm focusing on my PhD in public health because I need that even greater um, research grounding uh, to answer some big questions around not only impact but also effectiveness, right? Um, we want to know are we targeting right? Uh, we potentially are be able to answer some questions around what else can we do to ensure that, for example, we achieve continuation when we talk about contraception use. Um, how do we ensure that we retain people on antiretroviral treatment, for example. Uh, and the big questions around PrEP use, you know, and are we talking about PrEP on demand or long-term PrEP use and things like this. So I think, you know, my I have an interesting mix when I talk about my educational background, you know, the technical side of things and also the management and leadership side of things is, is complementing uh, what I do now, <laughs> you know, supporting teams, supporting ministries of health, uh, supporting practitioners, communities of practice to think about things differently in terms of how we set up um, and even improve public health interventions. Wow, your dedication to the field is so clear. So I feel better that you are involved. Um, it sounds like your experience in the working world led you back into further education. And now as a full-time working wife and mother, how do you integrate your work life and educational pursuits with raising a family? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one of the things that I must say 
um, has really helped me. Uh, I always set a vision for myself, like what, what should I be looking like in the next one year in terms of my own growth? Um, and I always tell people that, you know, in the public health sector, even within three months, there's so much change that would have happened because there's new research that gives us new uh, evidence to do something differently. So I always try to set my goals to be on a continuous sort of learning mode. Um, but even with that, you know, being a full-time mother, <laughs> a full-time worker, and sometimes uh, a part-time student that, you know, takes a, a lot of hours, it means that I have to really balance that out, balance out my my career growth uh, and development, be very intentional about it, set aside time for it, and at the same time, set aside time for my family and especially my children who are quite young. And then set aside time to even take a breather from all the three, right? Uh, so um, I, I must say I have a good support system back at home that works for me. <laughs> you know, as somebody who can take care of my children or my house when I'm gone and a spouse who is very, very supportive. So I think that has worked for me really well. Um, and just to say that um, I've also taken on teams that, you know, I was committed to mentor, to empower, to, to do what they need to do. While I also focus sometimes on more strategic kind of direction when it comes to, to, to the work, to the workspace. So I have been privileged to have great teams as well, teams that are willing to stand on their own, teams that are willing to figure things out and just strike the correct balance between consulting with me, having me as a mentor and a coach, but also going off to do their work. Yeah, so I, I would say this and many factors have contributed to, you know, my ability to be able to balance all these three legs so well. Over the course of your educational experiences, your faith seems to have played a role in how you've made choices. So what do you believe about the interplay of faith and positive social change? Yeah. So I believe that, you know, the faith that you have and what you believe in um, gives you the impetus to do what you do and sometimes grounds you in your belief, for example. Uh, like I believe strongly, I feel like I'm in the right technical field. Public health is what I enjoy doing. And I enjoy doing it because I know it directly positively impacts on people's lives. Whatever belief system someone has or that I have um, believes in doing good and believes in contributing to the greater good of the universe. Yeah. And with that, then I also believe that uh, I'm living my purpose by being a public health specialist and by supporting to build health systems, strengthen health systems, do outreach, you know, what I might call save one girl or one young person at a time. I believe that, you know, it comes from leaving my purpose. Um, and so I feel like I'm playing in the space that I was meant to play. <laughs> I'm not displaced. Um, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely an interconnection between what somebody believes in terms of what their purpose is and if they feel like they're living their purpose. And for me, yes, public health is my purpose. It's, I think I was born to do that one thing, <laughs> serve as a public health specialist in multiple fields and you know, pull different experiences together to make it work, uh, to, to make people's lives better, uh, either in terms of averting a, a risk 
that they have or giving them a better quality of life. For example, people already on antiretroviral therapy, you know, that long-term therapy gives them a normal life, uh, affords them to live their dreams and vision and achieve their goals in life and not, you know, be at a threat of dying because of advanced AIDS disease, for example. Yeah, so that's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah. Mm, and... In connection to that, earlier you mentioned mind-boggling statistics around new HIV infections. And in some ways, the fight against HIV stigma has made remarkable progress, despite some geographies and key populations still being deeply burdened by the disease. What do you believe about the future of HIV in Africa? Yes, so if we, if we are able to continue at the pace that we see in other countries, some countries have been said to have achieved epidemic control because, you know, they figured out the entire piece of prevention, care and treatment and, you know, put in place robust mechanisms to make sure, for example, that uh, a HIV test is a standard of care for everybody. It becomes a lifestyle to know your status. Uh, it becomes safe that if you know your status, you know that you'll be put on lifelong antiretroviral treatment. You have the support of your community and the healthcare provider to be able to you know, adhere to your treatment and live a normal life. So I think what we have seen over the years is that, you know, some countries have really achieved that. We've even seen a reduction in maternal newborn transmission of HIV because they're doing the right things at, at all the steps, not only the, the clinical side of addressing the, the clinical needs of, of a client, but also the structural support and the communal support that, you know, reduces HIV-related stigma. But having said that, then we know that there are pockets of countries where stigma still remains high. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, there, there are communities and, you know, this could be emerging communities. And maybe this is why we are seeing a surge in new HIV infections among particular populations. So we need to address that. We still have, um, for example, stigma and penalization related to key populations that we still have to deal with that. Not all populations have access to HIV services when and, and how they need them. Um, so we, we must continue to address that. So I think we have great gains that we can build on. Uh, there's still some work to be done, especially when we see that there are new HIV infections and now, of course, we continue to change the narrative based on, based on evidence. Now we're beginning to talk about status-neutral testing rather than going out to do a, a HIV test because we are trying to find a person living with HIV. We want everybody to know their status in a manner that's sustainable, in a manner that helps them make the correct choices on time. So I think it's, it's solidifying what we already know and also taking taking advantage of what is new, for example, the new HIV prevention therapies that are, on, are online or technologies that, you know, people are testing, you know, those will continue to change, uh, you know, and, and provide a greater menu of what we can access in terms of prevention care and treatment services. And Sarah, what drives your focused involvement in the HIV space? Is it just by chance that you've landed in the specialty or is there another driving force? There's always a personal story, right? <laughs> There's the ambition where I could say, well, I, I love public health. It's what I enjoy. But, but at the core of, of what I do, especially is that 
I have a very personal story related to the loss of my parents to HIV. Earlier on when treatment was not available, all right? So I'm passionate about HIV also because I have personal stories. It's my parents, it's people around me that died earlier on when treatment was not available and, you know, even testing was not, you know, available widely as it is right now. So I think that drives me <laughs> by and large uh, because I have a personal story. I've seen it. I, I know what it means to have um, access to diagnosis on time. I know what it would mean to have treatment continued uh, for, for an individual diagnosed to, to have HIV in terms of longevity. I mean, I have my siblings who didn't quite get parental support because we lost our parents when they were very young. You know, so I can relate to the story of orphans and vulnerable children. I can relate to stories of people who may have lost spouses to HIV or individuals who may have lost, uh, you know, parents uh, or friends or, or family along the line. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so moved by how your experience of loss has informed essentially what has become the work of your life. So thank you. Yeah, wow, and I think we'll, I think we'll draw this conversation to a close. Um, our motto at Trigger Eyes is connecting for change. So how do you define connection? Wow, connection for me is many things. Um, it starts with the, with the personal connection at the end of the day because when we see statistics, behind the statistics are people, you know, with real-life stories, real-life challenges or opportunities. So connection means that, you know, they have somebody they can speak to, somebody who understands them, somebody who can refer them and link them to what they need. But also I'm thinking about connection in terms of the groupings of the, those young people. Because for us, it would mean that if you find one girl who finds service through Tico, they will go and tell another one. Because they are connected within their communities, within their peer group, within their neighborhood, and so on and so forth. Then connection also means that, you know, they are providers. They are providers who are youth-friendly. They are providers um, who the youth trust and can go to uh, when they need these services. And they are providers who are resourceful to these young people. What they can do, they will do. What they can't do, they will refer you in a way that, you know, allows the young person to have choice, but also feel safe, uh, feel that they're within a confidential environment because that's, that's a big issue. Uh, for everybody. Everybody wants privacy. Everyone wants confidentiality. Everybody wants a pleasant sort of um, um, interpersonal communication or connection and also service delivery. So, yeah, it means many things. And of course, um, we can't uh, take out the whole um, technological kind of connection that, you know, is within this setup is, is what is relevant for the young people. I mean, when I was growing up, <laughs> the closest to technology that we had was an intercon, right? And not a mobile phone, not, not social media, not social media groups and things like that. So you also have then that connection through technology 
whether it's via SMS or WhatsApp or Telegram or Facebook or whatever. So it means many things, but I think at the, at the bottom of it all, when I think about connectivity and a young person is about, will they access what they need at the time when they need it in the format that they required? Because choice is, is very important to, to, to provide for these young people. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for your time. And we are delighted to have you with us. And thank you too to the listeners for tuning in to our first episode. There will be more to come. So keep your eye on our social media channels for any future conversations. Mm -hmm.